Welcome to Love is the Color, Racism, Reflections, and Resources in 2020. Love is the Color and Love Sees No Color is what I believe to my core when we choose to operate from that. My heart hurts as I open my eyes and continue to open my eyes and awareness as well as acknowledgement, as well as action on what continues to go on in the USA and in the world to our black brothers and sisters. As Will Smith said in 2016, racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. While blatant acts of dehumanization and racism are happening, we now have the ability and power to film what's happening and share on social media in seconds and minutes to millions of people around the world. When I look back 10 and 20 years ago, we didn't have the access to do so for free like we do now. This alone gives everyone a voice as we have seen recently. Black lives matter, period. Some may scoff and say all lives matter. All lives matter. I don't. I say black lives matter because as long as we allow racism to continue, all lives don't matter. Have you read, friend, about the history of black lives? That your friend's grandmother or grandfather or great-grandparents were not even allowed to to vote, to use the same bathrooms or doors as whites or were beaten or killed as slaves owned by another person. That it was a fight for freedom and basic human rights and dignities at every single turn. And that that fight continues in different ways today. Have you opened your eyes and hearts to what black lives have suffered? Now, like Matthew McConaughey, said in Time to Kill, when he was talking about the young African-American girl that was raped, and he said to the jurors, now imagine she is white. Because it gave those people that hadn't yet equated that all lives matter, that they didn't understand that black lives matter, the exact relatability for them to see from an equal point of view. For years, I haven't watched the news, but I keep a pulse through social media, Google, sources like New York Times, Guardian, or other sources or bloggers or people that I respect to share the truth from different perspectives or I'll look from different angles that are focused on love, mercy, grace, and or justice. And I continue to discover them all along the way. When George Floyd was killed, I felt compelled by God to watch the video. Likely, you've heard the story about George Floyd and what's happened. If you haven't, then friend, I don't know where you've been living um, because it's been literally global and over 15 million people alone have signed the petition. He was a 46-year-old black man who in essentially eight minutes and 46 seconds, he was killed by an officer by the name of 
Derek Chauvin, I believe. I could be mispronouncing his name because, again, I'm not watching this on the news. I'm just reading sources. By placing his knee to George's neck. And on the video, you can see George saying he can't breathe, he can't feel things. And when I watched the video, I was shook in so many different ways. I watched it initially, or as before I even hit play, I wanted to watch it with the intention of George being a representation of a close friend, of a brother, a sister, a father, a future husband, from any aspect of someone close to me, even though I didn't know George. Although, if you didn't know, George actually uh, was from Houston, Texas, which is where I grew up. And he attended Yates High School, which I went to for different events sometimes with sports and whatnot. I bawled like a baby when I watched the video. And I shook uncontrollably as I watched the horror unfold as he pleaded for his life with his last breath, literally in 2020, saying, I can't breathe. And anger rose up inside of me as I watched the indifference, the disconnection, and the inhumanity on the officer's face. And it continues to. I haven't watched it again, but just thinking about it. Normally, I wouldn't have even watched it. But I truly felt like God wanted me to see, feel, and stand with injustice because injustice Anywhere is injustice everywhere. I believe Martin Luther King said that. Um, I could be wrong. So please forgive me. I'm human if I'm off. And I stand with Black Lives in Unity. I feel more than ever that the awareness and action each of us takes to educate ourselves, to have the conversations to face the atrocity and the evil that has continued for generations is of the utmost importance. In a day and age where we have access online to reach millions of people in seconds, inspiring for positive change with our voice, influence, and platforms is essential. To echo Will Smith again, racism isn't getting worse, it's getting filmed. So people are seeing maybe what they once turned their, you know, faces away from or ignored or didn't believe it existed. Love is the color. Racism reflections and resources in 2020. I'm sharing reflections in my own journey. Racism history to help increase awareness and resources to help you and all of us increase awareness as well as action and acknowledgement. My challenge for myself, you, and this platform is will we be proud of our thoughts, our words, and our actions during our lifetime with our Black brothers and sisters and all people? I'm reminded continuously of the greatest commandments where it's love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what has happened whether it's been to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad, so many other lives lost, 
is showing a reflection of people that do not love themselves, let alone are not capable and have shown to not be capable of love, loving their neighbor or others. And black lives have suffered for generations and hundreds of years. Another, uh, another person that I'm reminded of is Laquan McDonald, which I just learned about him very recently. And I'll talk about that in a bit. Brianna Taylor, if you haven't heard about her case, she, this year in 2020, she is a 26-year-old African-American emergency medical tech. She was actually shot by the Louisville Metro Police Department on March 13th, who entered in her home executing a no-knock search warrant in Louisville. And it turned out that they actually had the wrong home and she hadn't even been in contact with the person they were looking for for quite some time. So there were several things that were missed and that resulted in her death. And the cut describes it as basically a botched raid, which obviously cost her her life. That those officers did not take account. She was apparently shot eight times. No drugs were found. The warrant in question targeted somebody else entirely who lived miles away and had already been detained by the time they entered in her apartment. And what's even more atrocious, as if that isn't already, her case languished for weeks before attracting national attention. Because apparently it was okay, justified, or whatever the case was. And finally, with the lawsuit of wrongful death, excessive force, gross negligence. And keep in mind, you guys, if you look back in the history of racism, at some point, uh, people that are black couldn't even file lawsuits. So you have to understand how far back this goes and things that have been allowed. Then the other case that I was mentioning, which was Ahmad, his actually happened in a South Georgia neighborhood, or him being killed, Mr. Arbery, Ahmad Arbery. He was 25 years old in a South Georgia neighborhood, and now apparently three people have been charged, and he was running in the neighborhood, basically, and they were not arrested until months later. Once again, once a video was released of the February confrontation, and as a result, ended up, according to a New York Times article, increased attention, celebrities and civil rights activists, people signing petitions, and then finally the Georgia Bureau of Investigation stepped in. They arrested George McMichael and his son, Travis McMichael, and charged them with murder and aggravated assault, and that Travis was the one, apparently, that, that uh, fired the fatal shots. So just to give you, those are some of the cases that have been on my mind. And then, like I said, recently, I discovered there's a documentary on Prime called 16 Shots. And it's about the life of Laquan McDonald. And more than four years after his fatal shooting. So I want you to think about that. Four years by former Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke, 
Judge Vincent Gaughan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, sentenced Van Dyke to six and three-quarter years of prison, of which he will end up serving less than four. So 2014, Officer Van Dyke shot Laquan McDonald 16 times. The initial reports by representatives from Chicago and the officers and the detectives was that Laquan lunged at him with a knife and that he was shot once. And the witnesses, the eyewitnesses, eerily had the same statements with a lot of things blocked out, which also didn't make sense compared to a video that was found and the officers and detectives saw from a Burger King close by. And everything started to unfold when the body was taken to the funeral home and the people saw how many times he had been shot. Which led to the attorneys for the family getting the video and seeing the truth and the officer and several others being you know, involved in charges or cases, etc. But this happened over, basically he was shot 2014, then a year later, or not a year, about half a year later, the McDonald family got a settlement, which again, is not going to bring McDonald back, Laquan McDonald back. The journalist, Brandon Smith, filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the videos after three extensions, the Chicago Police Department denied the request for the video, citing an ongoing investigation, and this was into August, which wasn't the case at all. So more cover-up. Smith, the, the journalist, filed a suit against CPD to release it. Finally, in November, a Cook County judge, so thankfully the judge didn't, you know, uh, aligned to the police department because imagine if he or she would have they forced the city to release the videos the dash cam video van dyke was then charged with first degree uh murder and the city releases the dash cam video that captured van dyke shooting mcdonald 16 times and the witnesses in the documentary that i'm watching the witnesses came forward saying that he wasn't even lunging at uh, the officer with a knife he was running away and the reason they were even there was because apparently he had stolen some videos uh, not videos radio from a church so that tells you right there and then the city, once the city became aware of everything, in November of 2015 through March of 2016, they called for the mayor, Rahm Emanuel's resignation and the firing of the police superintendent, Gary McCarthy. And so Emanuel fired the superintendent in 2015. And then the Justice Department started an investigation. Van Dyke was indicted in 2015 in December, and you his picture reminds me of Mr. Siobhan. Let's just say that. And, of course, the detectives and the officers who reports were dramatically at odds with the dash cam video are put on desk duty. On desk duty. So you're lying about a murder, and instead of being fired, you're put on desk duty. And then Van Dyke, who was suspended without pay at the time, is hired as a janitor by the city police's union. 
fast forward to fast forward to different retirements, different things happening. And then in 2016, in August of 2016, that the inspector then gets around to that the 10 officers related to the shooting should be fired. Um, but then a couple of days later, the superintendent at the time, Eddie Johnson, recommends that they that the seven police officers involved in the cover up be fired. The officers names were not released and they continue to claim he had a knife and did not respond to police commands. But the video shows he was running from them and never lunged at them. And then this goes on that they are fired and administrative charges are are filed against them. And the Justice Department in 2017 releases a report that CPD, the Chicago Police Department, engages in abuse against citizens. This goes into then one week suspensions are one week to four officers for failing to ensure their dashboards were operating properly on Laquan's uh, McDonald's shooting. So where's the accountability? And then besides the six counts, finally in 2017, besides the six counts of first degree murder and one count of misconduct, Van Dyke is charged with 16 counts of aggravated battery, one for each shot fired at Laquan. So that tells you he was reloading his gun. And the witnesses even said that at some point, like they were yelling at him, stop shooting. He's not moving. So that tells you about the officer's state of mind. And so much more. So, and I mean, there's so many other cases that are, you know, in varying ways like this. And then finally on October 5th, 2018, interesting. That's all my mom's birthday is the 5th. After a week-long trial, Van Dyke is found guilty of second-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery. And then it goes on to he ends up serving less than three and a half years. So I'm curious, like many of us are, hmm, what if the shooter was black and the person was white? What would he serve? So this man that's a police officer that in my thoughts should be held to a higher standard that lied about what the, what Laquan did, that other police officers and detectives lied. He ultimately murdered someone shooting him 16 times when Laquan was running from him. That's what shows in the video. Um, will serve as of, this is a report from January 18, 2019 from the Chicago Tribune. Will serve apparently less than three and a half years. I mean, like, I'm just at a loss on the logic and the insanity. And when you're purported, and, and I get it, you guys, like there's great police officers out there. There's police officers that do their job. I 100% get that. But when you have situations like this, and there's clear evidence that is lied about, hidden, etc., and 16 shots when the man was running from you, and you get three and a half years. And shouldn't you be held to a higher standard and not to a lesser standard? I mean, people get more for forgery and different things than what he got for murder. And that, and so I share that to say that goes into being very well aware of different biases, history, 
and what has gone on in different ways, shapes, or forms in our nation and how long it's gone on for. So let's start with awareness of privilege. If you haven't watched the video of Life of Privilege in a $100 raise, I highly recommend you do. What the coach does is lines up people, all different colors, races, etc., for a $100 race. He starts off the activity by sharing statements that allow the person to take two steps forward. So he says, if this is true for you, take two steps forward. Both parents are uh, both parents being married, growing up with a father in a home. So at that point, the person would have taken four steps past in front of the starting line. Access to a private education. Tutor growing up. Never worried about the cell phone shut off. Didn't have to help mom and dad with bills. No worries about where the next meal comes from. So then he has all the students, you know, whether they're still at the line, look forward, or all the students that are up ahead, turn around and emphasizes that all the above has nothing to do with anything they've done or that we've done, depending on if some of this is you or any decisions they've made. It shows you and us the disparities that exist among us and that many of us grow up with a privilege or a white privilege. In 1988, Peggy McIntosh wrote an essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. She shared insights into how the origins and legacy are racism. They include elements, including influences in television of mostly seeing whites, shampoos and cosmetics catering to whites, and hiring practices of white-sounding names. McIntosh in her essay shares the powerful psychological phenomenon of white privilege, a subconscious prejudice perpetuated by often white people's lack of awareness that they held or hold this power. Essentially, that a white person for hundreds of years has moved through life with relative ease and comfort for centuries compared to the hardships, obstacles, and atrocities faced by African-Americans. Whether you have experienced life as black, white, and or another race, it's important to realize the psychology of privilege. And often as being a Caucasian or white, sometimes people don't even realize it and or they devalue what other people's experiences have had. And this is why awareness, acknowledgement, and action is so important. And exposing yourself to all races. And then as well as the impact of racism on Black lives individually and collectively and what that's done for the hundreds of years that first slavery went on, then you had emancipation, then you had Juneteenth, which happened, I'll talk about that in a bit, then you had civil rights, and now you have to where people are able to showcase evidence of racism and use their voice publicly with social media, with petitions like the petition now that's over 18 million people have signed for George Floyd as one example. It's it literally, it's the petition that's ever gotten the most people's um, signatures ever in history. That tells you. So some of the history of racism in the Smithsonian Magazine, Milan, if I'm pronouncing this name correctly, Solly, shares in an article on the history of racism, how between 1525 to 1866, over 12.5 million people were kidnapped from Africa through the transatlantic trade. 
It is estimated that about 4 million people survived and were enslaved in the USA. What is happening in our nation and our world today originated almost 500 years ago. Because keep in mind, your friend, their grandmother or great-grandmother or father, at some point may have lineage through the transatlantic trade. So that already fundamentally lends itself to a different psychology, not even to mention comments or how people treat people sometimes because of the color of their skin. So it's important whether whether you're, you know, whatever color you are, that you are aware of that. People were treated like a commodity, yet abused and used worse than most people treat their dogs today. And being sensitive to that, you guys. Keep in mind how America has historically taught slavery in textbook, textbooks is said to often have a sanitized version with on heroes like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, which I'm not discounting anything they've done, and like the hundreds of slaves that Harriet Tubman helped free. But how about the stories of those who remained slaves their entire lives and or were killed at their master's hands? Not only that, but it's important to realize that in our history, as a nation, 12 U.S. presidents, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, which helped write the Declaration of Independence, among other documents, obviously, and and Ulysses Grant owned slaves. What I found really interesting as I dug through some more history again, because I haven't looked at some of this stuff for years, is that George Washington's will noted his slaves to be set free within a year of his widow's death. So he wanted to have slaves while they were alive. She freed them within a year of his death. These historical accounts show the inherent psychological struggle even slave owners had and what seemed like an entitlement or an ownership almost to own another human being somehow and to not give them their freedom. One example includes the state of Texas. You heard me share that I grew up in Houston, which included 29 Jim Crow laws passed. If you haven't heard about the Jim Crow laws, I highly recommend you dig in. But in a summary, these laws, also known as what were called the Black Codes, mandated separate but equal for public facilities. They were passed down from 1865 to 1866. The reality was that the facilities were far inferior. As recent as 2017, you guys, Texas schools falsely taught that the main causes of the Civil War was state rights and not slavery. Come on. The Whitney Plantation in Louisiana is another place that gives historical accounts opened in 2014 to the public. I haven't been yet. It's on my list. Shares the history of slaves working in the fields and the plantation owners who grew rich off of their labor. Whipping and rapes were not uncommon historically in slavery as a whole. As put by William T. Allen, a slave owner's abolitionist on who could not safely return to Alabama. Cruelty was the rule and kindness the exception. Although Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, over a hundred years ago, 
nearing what? Oh yeah, over 150 years ago. In 1863, the decree took two and a half years to enact. On June 19th, 1865 was when the General Gordon Granger decreed the enslaved people of Galveston, Texas were officially free. This is now known, that you may have heard of recently, as America's second Independence Day, Juneteenth. Even after mass movement to the North, about 90% of slaves remained in the South captive by circumstances, debt, and or years of bondage mentally. And this was in the early 1900s. These are snapshots, you guys, of historical moments that are tips of the iceberg. Within hundreds of years of history in the United States that stems across the globe going back to the African continent. The historical influence of this history of over now 500 years has not gone without consequence, without stain on our nation impacting and continuing to impact our racial, economic, and educational institutions. Yes, now a lot has been done. However, a lot remains to be done. We are now nearing over 200, nearing 200 years after the emancipation that happened in 1863. So 1963, 2063 would be 200 years. Yet we still see evidence of generations upon generations passing fear, judgment, oppression, and or racism. Those historical influences are not without consequence. And the generations upon generations that have been impacted. I believe the three pillars of transformation rest on awareness, which comes obviously from education and opening yourself up to whether it's episodes like this, whether it's some of the resources I'm going to share, and then acknowledgement, realizing that, you know, not everyone has had your experience. And, you know, and you haven't had everyone's experience and it's recognizing and being aware of someone's past, present, and our future, and that people... You know, not everyone has a view of love is the color and love sees no color. And it's realizing that, you know, your friends, your brothers and sisters, your neighbors have been very, have been impacted in a very real way in every area of your life, of their lives and in their families. And they have history of this. And then the last point is action. And action may not always look the same for, you know, every single person that may come in different ways. So it can be, you know, advocating on a petition. It can be being active in an organization like the NAACP. It can be, you know, writing letters to, you know, a attorney general. It can be protesting publicly. So some resources for racial change These are some of the resources which have impacted my own awareness, acknowledgement, and action. I encourage you to seek various resources as you grow in your own journey because you may find some people or resources that resonate for you and then likely my resources and things will change as well. So I mentioned the National NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The American Civil Liberties Union is another one. Black Lives Matter, 
Amnesty International, Equal Justice Initiative, the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, which is the place where Martin Luther King was killed. Speaking of which, the Martin Luther King Center here in Atlanta, Georgia, which I visited several times. The Civil Rights Museum, Atlanta, Georgia, which I visited within a year after it was opened. It's um, right next to Centennial Park in between the Coca-Cola Museum, if you ever visit here, and the aquarium. It's well worth the visit. It's super powerful, you guys. And I talk about it in my one-day guide or my one-day episode in Atlanta, Georgia as well. And I also talk about the MLK Center there as well. Activists, Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King Jr., Brian Stevenson. He's the one that wrote the book, which is now a movie called Just Mercy. And he also has the Equal Justice Initiative, which I want to want to visit their museum in the future as well. Uh, Rachel Cargill. She shares a ton on social media about different things. I may be mispronouncing her name right. Ijuama Ulu. And I, include a, I included a backlink in this section on my blog as well under some of the resources that you can find all of this. The Conscious Kid, which highlights about having conscious and racially aware and, you know, purporting, purporting a love focus towards people with children. And then from privilege to progress, movies that I've either seen recently or overall, Harriet, about Harriet Tubman. That's on my list. I haven't seen it yet, but I have written several book reports about her and I studied her avidly when I was in elementary school. I was fascinated by her and her fight for freedom, but more importantly, her fight to help set others free. Bessie Coleman. I just saw a documentary about Bessie Coleman. She was the first African-American international aviation phenomenon pilot the first African-American pilot, woman pilot in the early 1900s. So she was literally like well ahead of her time. She, her dream was to, she, she grew up. If I remember correctly, she grew up in the South, but ended up going to Chicago. Then she worked at a barber shop, but she couldn't as an African-American woman enroll in flight school because of the color of her skin. So I want to pause there for some of you to really think about that. That people in their lineage have stories like this. And it's important you're aware of it. And the documentary is super powerful. She ended up, which a lot of people would not have done, going to France to study at some of the best aviation schools and or with some of the best teachers. Came back to the U.S., continued on her dream, but then realized that she was going to do some basically um, air shows and then went back to France to train on stunt, basically on being a stunt pilot. She was named by many people, one of the best pilots in the world, yet she didn't get credit or if she was in the media, especially when the white media talked about her, they would discredit her. Even to the point, you guys, when she died, there was still speculation. She died basically flying, but she was not flying that day. She was in the second seat in the plane, in the Jenny. They called it the Jenny. And there's still speculation on that the the person that brought the plane up to Chicago for her, he brought the wrong plane. He was a white male. 
and that he sabotaged the plane because later they found a wrench in the plane in the controls to where he couldn't regain um, control. He ended up being killed as well. There's a lot of speculation about that. And one of the articles had the audacity to write that he was teaching her how to fly when there was already countless things in the media about how she trained with some of the best people in the world and she was one of the best pilots. So that just tells you the bias, the jadedness, so much more. It's a powerful documentary. A Green Book talks about a famous musician his name was, oh my God, I just watched this yesterday. Hold on. My, um, my mind has so many things in it right now that I'm thinking like, okay, well, like, where am I? I mean, not where am I, but like, just so many things are floating. Green box? Oh no, green book. So what green, the green book is, which I had never even heard of to, uh, up until this point, is it was a book for African Americans to know where they could stay. So basically in alignment with the Jim Crow laws, quote unquote separate but equal they had separate hotels you guys if you didn't know that and the the hello why didn't i remember that it's so simple i you know what i was thinking of the actor's name the the real gentleman's name was dr don shirley he was a world-class african-american pianist who was going at the time for the this is all about the movie he was about to go on a concert tour in the deep South and he wanted to use music as a way for, you know, people to raise their awareness, both from the white side, because obviously white people needed to have, you know, their mindset altered from what their parents had potentially taught them growing up in the U S because again, keep in mind, a lot of them had origins in slavery that they owned slaves. And then, um, surely, Often he even talks about in the movie or if you look more on his history that he didn't feel like he directly connected like with like as an African-American because of his deep love of classical music and so many different things that were not the norm back then. And he recruits Tony Lip, a tough talking bouncer, because he's very well aware of that he's going on a tour in the deep south and that he's likely going to have problems. So more or less, he needs a bodyguard. And it sh the movie shares so many things about how Dr. Don Shirley was this world-renowned musician. He was playing to sold-out concerts, yet he couldn't eat at the restaurant at the venue. As one example, and there's a lot more. So I encourage you to watch that. Just Mercy is super powerful, you guys. I read the book first in January. Because uh, again, I always believe in increasing awareness, and I'll talk more about my history in a, in a, in a second with Black Lives, with diversity, etc. And I read the book. I highly recommend you read the book first. And then I saw the movie. And it talks about the bias and prejudice. And specifically in this case, it talks about a death row inmate. And that he was wrongly convicted. And that's often been the case. And I actually studied things about battered women and death row with my abnormal psych class when I was in... Uh, University of Houston working on my undergrad. So after graduating, like the whole thing of Just Mercy, if you haven't seen it, like I said, it's really good. Again, I recommend you read the book first. Brian Stevenson, which heads Equal Justice Initiative, he's been an advocate for you know issues like this now for years. After graduating from Harvard, he heads to Alabama to defend those wrongly condemned or those that cannot afford proper representation. And one of his first cases is Walter McMillan, 
who was sentenced to die in 1987 for the murder of an 18-year-old girl. Let me also say that she was a white girl. So that tells you there's because there's a lot more about the book and about that and the state of mind of people in Alabama at the time. Not everyone, of course, but a lot of people. And, you know, this particular police department, etc., despite evidence proving his innocence. He spent over six years on death row. Oh, he spent six years on death row. And Stevenson encounters racism and legal and political maneuverings as he obviously fights for McMullen's life, literally. And it's a super powerful movie. Thurgood is about uh, Thurgood Marshall in his early year, early to many years with the NAACP. Also fighting for for rights, fighting for Brown versus education. The movie's really good. Brian Banks is um, about um, Brian, who it's actually he ended up being in Atlanta. And it's about his case where he was wrongfully convicted of rape, despite the fact that like so many things came up and he ended up going to jail. Then he was on probation. Then he was labeled a sex offender which kept him from playing football and so many other things, obviously, on his life. He didn't rape the girl. And in the case, it was even shown right away when another organization ended up helping him out that the summer school that he was in, there was no way he could have dragged the girl through the hallway. But again, nobody thought to look or cared to look. 16 Shots is the one I just talked about with Laquan McDonald. That's a documentary. I Am Not Your Negro. I haven't seen that yet, but I've seen the preview. And that talks about Hollywood bias and several other things. Becoming by Michelle Obama and then Thug, which stands for The Hate You Give and is based on the book. And it talks about a young girl. It's fictionalized, but obviously it can be true and it has happened. A young girl that sees that ends up witnessing one of her close childhood friends being shot because the police officer panics and thinks he's reaching for, you know, a gun or something. And all he does is reach for um, a hairbrush. And I think he ended up shooting him like two or three times in that moment of fear, bias, whatever the case was. So my background and experiences in diversity. So as early as elementary and middle school, myself and my friends became activists for racism in different ways. Among many ways we took a stand included publicly wearing t-shirts, love sees no color to school, early, early on. I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Poland to a Polish mom and a Bulgarian father, which also different countries around the world also often have or sometimes have different views of fear of you know someone or anyone that is of a different color. We came to this country by the time I was two years old. Like many of us, I was shaped by how I grew up, who I was surrounded by, as well as my desire to be love and express love. And one of my favorite scriptures is 1 John 4.18, perfect love drives out all fear. From a young age, I was exposed to all kinds of races. By six months of age, I was surrounded by a heavily Asian community at a refugee camp in Italy. So obviously there was a lot of Italians. When we immigrated to South Carolina before I was two, I saw all beautiful skin colors, including black, white, and Hispanic. I witnessed an outpouring of love at the refugee camp when I was showered with attention and love as the only baby. My mom tells me these stories all the time. The same thing happened in South Carolina when neighbors welcomed us, foreigners, with open arms. She, my mom continues to tell me countless stories of neighbors surprising my family with gifts all the time. 
Unconditional love was taught, shared, and modeled, especially by my mom. It's easy to see how and why my heart early on craved diversity in every way because I had it all the time. We continued to travel overseas summers after I turned six, continuing my exposure around the globe with Poland, Bulgaria, and other countries. As early as five years old, if not sooner, I fearlessly went door to door to homes of all races to share Girl Scout cookies. My friends in elementary school included Pilar, Rosrick, and Tanya. Pilar was Hispanic, Rosrick an African-American, and Tanya from Germany. Rosrick and I played basketball almost every day for years, you guys. We lived like four or five houses down from each other. This diversity continued on in Smith and Chancellor Elementary in Houston, Texas with Marie, you and Lee and M&A, friends from France, Turkey, and Vietnam, among many other friends. From the start, I had the beautiful skin colors of the rainbow all around me. In middle school, two of my closest friends were Tamika and Shannon, shout out if you guys listen, both African-American. Some of my other great friends included Isabel, Lorena, Kristen, and Lisa, who uh, were Hispanic. Isabel was uh, from Mexico, and uh, actually Mexican descent, and then Lorena was from Colombia. And then Kristen and Lisa were both Caucasian. I focused my friendships on love, openness, and joy. Many of these friendships lasted for years and decades and continue to varying degrees today. From time to time, I would witness acts of bias or racism in and out of school, often speaking up unapologetically for and with my friends. I have dated interracially, and I believe my family and children will be mixed. In college, I met Angela and Janelle, both African-American, who we started Millennium Models with, which stands for Making Optimum Differences in Everyone's Lives at SAM. You guys may have heard me talk about this in college. An organization and nonprofit still active today focused on activism, empowerment, and community service. Our organization started and still is today over 80% African American. We created reading programs, domestic violence awareness, scholarship pageants, and fundraisers, among many projects. In the process, we became best friends and lived together about two years when I was in graduate school. You may imagine with all this openness and history, I was exposed to numerous conversations and experiences with deep, deep relationships and community, increasing my awareness, acknowledgement, and actions, and passion and purpose and drive to make a difference. During college, I was avidly involved in the NAACP and regularly attended meetings and fundraisers. I participated in events and fundraisers, including writing a poem and co-producing the poem, with a song by J.L. Miller, a fellow student and songbird. They both pledged Delta Sigma Theta, which is a, historically an African-American sorority. As I was evaluating various sororities, even before they pledged, I decided DST aligned best for me. The spring they pledged, I was graduating. I later found out from a great friend of mine in the sorority that the only reason I wasn't accepted was because I was graduating that spring, which she didn't have to tell me. She just wanted to let me know, you know, that they, and let me know that they really wanted me, which was amazing. About a year later, I was approached by the graduate chapter back in Huntsville, Texas to pledge. At the time, I was already working full-time at the credit union. I prayerfully considered pledging and decided I wouldn't at the time, but remained open to the possibility. I regularly was invited to Delta as well as African-American events. 
after college, I ended up going to Las Vegas with Janelle to a Delta Sigma Theta convention with her sorority sisters. Yes. Many of them actually suggested Janelle invite me, which was super sweet. Keep in mind, I was the only Caucasian girl, but I was always completely myself and always respected and loved on people, period. Tina was actually my first Herbalife customer that we connected at Janelle's funeral. You've probably heard me talk about that Janelle's my angel. She passed away to cancer in 2013. Bethany's been one of my customers with Herbalife as well. So shout out to Bethany if she listens in. And we stay connected in different ways. So that just shows you the history and the longevity of years and decades now of friendship. Because we became friends like in 2000, 2001, 2003. And we're now in 2020, you guys. Anytime I travel, I find myself connecting to people of all races, globally, at airports, on the plane, and at destinations easily. When I create retreats, I make it a point to have diversity expressed with Black Lives Matters as well as other ethnicities. Yet all my diverse interactions, whether in all African-American, Hispanic, Asian, or mixed circles, I felt freely and comfortably myself. People often commented curious about my comfort and ease around everyone. I truly believe it's a God-given gift. And I truly believe it ties in a lot of ways of making disciples of all nations, because even in countries where I didn't speak the language, like in Bulgaria, when I went the first time when I was six, I still went unapologetically, fearlessly playing in the playground. So I share this to share so you may get a glimpse at, you know, from the start, how adventurous, how diverse my life was, how diverse my schooling was, my exposures to people of all races, all ethnicities that went, you know, from early on to elementary, middle school, and high school, college, and continues today. And I believe that's a, it's a great deal of how, you know, values and things my parents instilled in us. Also me being in four countries by the time I was two, you know, that openness, that, that desire to love my neighbor as myself. And I have a deep desire to learn cultures and, and communities and ethnicities and history. And while your history, likely, you know, we all have different histories and exposures and experiences may be different than mine. I encourage you to open your heart and mind. I would not be who I am today without each and every precious soul in my life. You know, I still remain super close to Angela and I often say that Janelle is my angel and Lindsay, who I also met through Angela and uh, Janelle and who's been friends with them since elementary. I know and feel daily Black Lives Matter. Challenging myself and fit life creation, hashtag create it to grow. In the midst of how racism is being filmed now and in my and your face, I have felt pulled to not only dedicate time for awareness and acknowledgement, but to increase my own actions. I challenge myself to open my eyes to historical as well as current events. I regularly have conversations with my Black friends, family, and other friends. In 2020, I have increased researching credible resources for racism and equality. I participate in various events and movements. Like I shared, I watch movies that are based on true stories and then dig into the books and or more insights like Just Mercy, Brian Banks, Thurgood, Green Book, and 16 Shots, among many more. Those are just some of the ones from this year. Actually, Brian Banks was last year. 
In addition, I have shared views on social media of Love Sees No Color and my history. I have reached out to the NWCP chapter in Atlanta to increase involvement. On a business level, I monitor our brand presentation for inclusion from our online presence, like our homepage, blog, social media, newsletter, to our live events for representation and honor of Black Lives Matter. I look for petitions to sign and have signed a minimum of seven this year alone. I advocate and use my voice for reaching out to people in positions like I did recently with the Attorney General and Mayor that I did for the case of Breonna Taylor. If I was married and a mom already, I would have regular conversations, align in organizations and events together, and include my children avidly in diverse situations. Black, white, brown, yellow, purple, or pink, or whatever color. How are you challenging yourself on a personal and professional level? Love is the color and seasonal color. Love is the color, racism, reflections, and resources in 2020. Intention and prayer is to help you increase your awareness, your acknowledgement, and your action. We all come from different histories and backgrounds. None of us are perfect. Hashtag I'm human. I always say vibe, your vibe equals your tribe and, you know, or communities and things like that. And today, interestingly enough, someone pointed out that, oh, that has a quote unquote negative connotation for Indians. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I had no idea. Thanks for the awareness. But I'm like, my intent was not that. My intent was, hey, this is your tribe. And so I also want to challenge people that while being sensitive, yes, but realize you can never be perfect. You will never please everybody. And people will, you know, I like to challenge myself to find the good in situations and look at the heart between behind someone else, especially when they reach out for great, you know, opportunities, then to point to the one thing maybe that, you know, especially if it's their first impression of me, that, you know, they may not be aware and really acknowledge their, their, you know, their desire for love and light. Like, you know, Jesus says that we're all called to be salt and light on the earth and to be a city on the hill. And realize that, you know, not everyone has the same awareness of history. And, you know, you can look at almost every word and find a negative connotation or a sensitivity to it, you know, if that's your focus. But also give people grace. You know, realize that people are learning. People may not have the same passions that you do. People may not have the same exposure that you do. And when you do it, do do it in a way that is, you know, gentle and, you know, whatnot. And interesting enough, this had never come up. Like I interchangeably, you know, like many of us will say community, we'll say tribe, we'll say team, because I try to be very inclusive. But at the same time, you know, at any point, someone could twist the word community into something negative. So it's important to remain, I believe, open-minded. And again, look with eyes of love. We all come from different histories and backgrounds, and we all get to choose our focus of love, joy, peace, mercy, and or justice. Get to know your own and your own blind spots. Reflect on how you may increase your own mercy, your own love, your own grace towards others on their journey and help in reaching justice in different ways and to for transformation. Love no matter what. What are some of your thoughts on racism, reflections, and resources? Is love the color for you? 
you love this post in this episode, you'll also love 2020 Reflections of an Entrepreneur when I first dug into what was happening with COVID as well. Because I don't know about you, friend, but this year has been quite a year, to say the least. So feel free to comment, feel free to share, leave a review. I do shout outs and reviews. And as always, friends, create, transform, and inspire. Use your influence to inspire influence. Faith, wellness, money, marketing, business, and travel so you create a life and business already. Head on over to the blog, the podcast, and the freebies to jumpstart your transformation. If you're ready to dive into the online courses, the live events, or the retreat, and if you want to create with our community on an even deeper level, definitely check out our internships, our influencer collaborations, management, and brand engagement. Let's create it.